My name is Reese. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Fellowship Church, and it's my privilege to walk through Acts 15 with you together this morning. And if you are new to Grace Fellowship Church, maybe this is your first time visiting or you're kind of new-ish, whether you're here in person or you're on Zoom, I want to uh, extend a very warm welcome. Thank you for spending your time with us this morning. Years ago, I heard a story about an affluent church, and I knew, actually knew the pastor of this church, although it was somebody else that was telling me the story, and this church was fighting over the renovation of their sanctuary, particularly what kind of seats they should have in their sanctuary. And the pastor was so distraught over this battle that he was in tears and he pleaded with the guys and said, gang, I grew up as a missionary kid in Africa and we worshiped God and we slept or we sat on the floor in the mud, in the dirt. It it was okay. We don't need to fight over the chairs. I don't know the end of that story, but it was definitely, there was a lot of division over such an issue in that church. Now, you guys are probably familiar that and, and aware that division in the Christian church is not a new thing. In fact, we should probably expect it because of sin in the world. We're sinful beings. But what we should do is we should strive to work through these conflicts and these divisions for Christ's sake. We've been going through the book of Acts, and we are at chapter 15. And in chapter 15, we're going to see the church work through a conflict, a significant disagreement. And in this chapter, it's not going to be over the chairs or the color of the carpet, but something much, much more significant. So if you would, pray with me. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word this morning. Help us to see in our own hearts where we need to see the gospel more clearly, how we need to serve others because Jesus did that for us. I pray that you would enlighten our hearts again as we go through Acts 15. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you have an outline, you can look on there right now. You'll see four points. And what we're going to do, this is a long story here in Acts 15. So what we're going to do is we're going to, I'm going to read it in chunks. And before I start into to chapter 15, I want to give you a little bit of context. If you remember from last week, Paul and Barnabas had been sent on a missionary journey from the church in Antioch. They traveled all over the place, and they were seeing Gentiles come to faith in Jesus. It was very exciting, and they had persecution as well. But when they got back to Antioch, to their home church, they gathered everybody together And verse 27 says this, when Paul and Barnabas arrived and gathered the church together, they reported all the things that God had done with them and that he had opened a door for faith to the Gentiles. Okay, so that's the scene. It's going to be up on the screen if you want to look at it on your own. Chapter 15, Acts, verse 1. I'm going to be reading from the New English Translation. It is up on the screen. Now some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. When Paul and Barnabas had a major, a major argument and debate with them, the church appointed Paul and Barnabas 
and some others from among them to go up to meet with the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this point of disagreement. So they were sent on their way by the church. And as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they were relating at length the conversion of the Gentiles and bringing great joy to all the brothers. When they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all these things that God had done with them. But some from the religious party of the Pharisees, who had believed, stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise the Gentiles and order them to observe the law of Moses. Both the apostles and the elders met together to deliberate about this matter. We're on our first point in our outline. What does it really mean to be a Christian? So as we start Acts chapter 15, the first thing that we should notice in verse 1 is it says, Now some men came down from Judea. This is actually a pattern that had happened in Acts and should signify something to us as the audience because if you've been paying attention before, this has happened a few times and usually it means there's some authority coming into the situation. If you remember Paul or Saul at the time, he went to the leaders in Jerusalem to get permission to go arrest Christians in Damascus. And in chapter 11, uh, the, the Jerusalem church hears about what's happening way up in Antioch. It's north of them. And they send Barnabas to go up there to investigate. It says he went down from Judea or down from Jerusalem. And then in chapter 11, at another point, there's some prophets who go down from Jerusalem to, to, uh, to Antioch. So the issue seems like it seems like there's these church authorities coming in and they're saying that you have to be circumcised. Now, notice in verse one, they're not saying you might have to or you probably will. They're saying you cannot be saved. Cannot be saved unless you are circumcised. You have to do this one thing first. Or in other words, you have to become Jewish first to be a Christian. And, and needless to say, this has got to be very shocking to them because many of them were, Jew, were Gentiles who had heard the gospel and believed and they were just hearing these stories of these missionaries who went out and lots of people were believing. And they didn't have to become Jewish first. We know Paul and Barnabas' perspective. It says uh, that they had a major argument with them in verse 2. And they debated them. But the church decided that they needed some more clarification in verse 2. So they sent uh, Paul and Barnabas with some others to Jerusalem to figure this out. There is a big disagreement here on one of the most fundamental issues. What does it mean to be a Christian? Or what requirements are there to move a soul from death to life? Do you have to be circumcised to make this happen? You know, we don't, mo- we don't really know what motivated these guys to travel all the way up to Antioch and say these things, but it was clearly an important matter to them. You know, maybe they felt like the church there was just being too careless with God's word. Maybe they felt like Paul and Barnabas were teaching a half-hearted gospel. And so we're wondering, like, well, who's right? Are they right? Are Paul and Barnabas right? Again, the church sends them to go figure it out and work it through. And when Paul and Barnabas and and the whole gang get there to Jerusalem, they're welcomed. And in verse 5, one of the first things they get is, 
There are more people who are in leadership who have this same perspective. If you look at verse 5, it says, they say it's necessary to circumcise the Gentiles. So for them, these new Christians need to look Jewish. They need to follow the customs and regulations that the Old Testament set out. Is that what it means to be a Christian? This is very important to figure out. In verse 6, they all get together to have a meeting, and it says to deliberate the matter. Consider if you were one of these Gentiles who believed, you know, what if, if you, were, you were saved, you would receive salvation, and your sins were wiped clean. You're living in obedience to God, and then this, this, this new message comes in, this, this fine-sounding argument comes in, and now... You're doubting. What's going on? Where, where do I stand with God? What does it mean to be a Christian? So this question is on the table. Let's see how the leaders deal with it. And we'll move to section number two, clarity on the gospel. I'm going to read verses 7 through 11. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that some time ago God chose me to preach to the Gentiles. So they would hear the message of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, has testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between them and us, cleansing our hearts by faith. So now, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary... We believe that we're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they are. So Peter, it's his turn. And just as an aside here, it's not the main point, but I find so much of how, uh, how, what happens here when he gets up to speak. If you look at the phrase there in verse 7, after there had been much debate, then Peter speaks. He had so much on his side. He probably felt so right, but he was listening before speaking up. And when he does, he gets to the heart of the tension and the debate. Now remember, from a Jewish perspective, the Gentiles are on the outside and the Jews are on the inside. And there are some who believe that those on the outside, they need to do all the changing to become like those on the inside. And when Peter goes to speak, he shows that this really isn't true. What does it mean to really be a Christian? If you look at verse 7, he says that the Gentiles would hear the message of the gospel and believe. He doesn't say anything about circumcision. He doesn't say anything about more steps that they need to take. They hear the gospel and they say, that's what I want to stake my life on. And they believe it. And then four times in a row from this point on, Peter tackles this issue of do the Gentiles need to change more than the Jews? And the answer is no, because verse 8, he says, they they were given the Holy Spirit just like we we were. So this evidence of faith, this Holy Spirit has been given equally to the Gentiles and the Jews. They're on equal ground with receiving the Holy Spirit. And then verse 9, he says, That their hearts were cleansed by faith. And God made no distinction between them and us. The Jews weren't better. Jews and Gentile alike had their hearts cleansed by faith. Then verse 10. 
He talks about how uh, there's you're placing a neck or, or you're placing a yoke on the neck of these disciples. And what he's saying is that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear this. We have not been able to fully fulfill the law's requirements. And so, again, we Jews are not better than them. And then finally, the fourth one is in verse 11, where he says, we believe, so we the Jews believe that we're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. We believe the same things. This is how you receive salvation. This is what it means to be a Christian. So Peter clearly answers the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? You hear the gospel, you believe it, and all of its implications. Verse 11 is really the great summary. We believe that we're saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus. And this is true for the Jew and for the Gentile. What's the takeaway from his message here? Perhaps you've heard the phrase, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It means that your, your worst enemy, the people that you despise in your mind, or the, the annoying people in your life, the people that you want to avoid in your life, or the people you hate or can't stand, those people are not uh, less deserving of the gospel than you are. And you're not more deserving of the gospel than they are. This is so central to understanding the gospel. But there's a danger to be aware of, and Peter helps us and them to see it in verse 10. He says, basically, by, by uh, requiring more to receive the grace of God, you are in danger of putting God to the test. He said, our ancestors could not fulfill the law of Moses and all of the requirements and no one else can. So basically, if you're putting more requirements on what it means to have to, to, to rest on the grace of Jesus, then that itself is anti-gospel. And he goes on to say, maybe a little bit stronger, that if you do this, you're putting God to the test. Now, putting God to the test here could, could be analogous to saying what Jesus did on the cross was not enough. We have to do more. You need to, to look this way, to pray this way, to, to act this way, or some other requirement added in there, and then you could be a Christian. Just like the Jews here from verse 5, I think when we consider ourselves, we are tempted to mix more into those requirements and put them on others to, to have them be accepted in our minds. You know, thinking goes like this. We're on the inside. Those people are on the outside. They need to change to come on the inside. Because somehow we've already figured it out. And we're right. Now, for the Jews, in this situation here, verse, the verse 5 Jews, you know, they want to mix in the regulations and the customs from Judaism in the Old Testament. That's probably not your uh, struggle or my struggle. But we do have this same struggle. What are these things? What are these, these, these regulations or customs or culture that we put on 
others or these yokes that we put on others. As I've been thinking about this, it's really hard to identify because our default situation is that we're right because if you thought you were wrong, you would change. We're blind to many of these things and so therefore we don't see them. So I have some examples I wanted to give to you to consider. Consider, when you think about fellow church members, what do you think when your fellow church members, uh, what do you think about their choice of how they school their children? Do you look at that and think, man, I don't know if they believe the gospel. What about how they voted? What about what they post on social media? What about when you go over here and say, look, do you know what yard sign they put in their yard? They must not believe the gospel. They probably don't know about Jesus. Or what about Christians from who don't go to your church or don't go here? What about when their worship style is different, when their denomination is different, when they dress differently? Or maybe they even seem to take God's law too liberally. All of these things may be subtle barriers, or in Peter's words, yokes that we put on others. Let me give you an example from my life. Uh, it's a very small instance, but years ago there was someone who came into our church here on a Sunday morning. And uh, this guy was, he was a big guy, big beard, right? Bandana, holding back all the hair. He had a t-shirt on and shorts. And you know what my temptation was when he walked in the door was to think, oh, we got to reach out to this guy. Because Christians don't dress like that when they come to church on Sunday morning. They don't look like that. Well, I was ashamed because it turns out that who that was was somebody that has impacted some of you guys. His name was Greg Boros. He was the leader of Campus Crusade for Christ on Penn State's campus. And sadly, he just passed away not too long ago. I wish I could have known him better. He was a sweet lover of Jesus, very committed to the gospel and seeing it spread. And that, that little, little story there, that little view into my heart, shows you what, what I'm capable of and you're capable of. We can put on these yokes and it affects how we view other people. So examine your own hearts. Where are these yokes? Where are these barriers that are you putting on others and how you view them? Maybe you're saying to yourself, they're not really a Christian because they're not X, Y, Z. And ask yourself, is this view of them stopping you from reaching out to them and sharing the gospel with them? I work in campus ministry, and one time is another failure of mine uh, where this was true. And I was, uh, I was on campus in the dorms meeting people to invite them to Bible study, and I had heard that this one room, uh, these guys might be interested, and I went up to the door, and there's like loud blasting music coming out of the room and posters on the door that, you know, didn't really seem like they would have any interest in my invitation. And to my shame, I thought... I'm busy, they're not going to be interested, and I just moved on to the next opportunity. 
I did not see those men behind that door as desperate souls who needed salvation, just like I was desperate. And people reached out to me. Perhaps this is the worst yoke of all, is not finding out what someone actually believes or if they know the gospel. And instead, we make assumptions based on outward appearances. And we go off of that. Let's not forget verse 11, that we believe that we're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. So Peter brings clarity to this question that salvation is only through Jesus. And this is what it means to become a Christian. And if we try to add to that, we are in danger of putting God to the test. Now let's move on to point number three, compromise on culture, not the gospel. The, uh, the, the story doesn't end here because there's still more to be figured out. It's not enough to just, just define the gospel and everybody's happy. That's right. Let's read here. Verse 12. The whole group kept quiet and listened to Barnabas and Paul while they explained all the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among them, among the Gentiles through them. After they stopped speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has explained how God first concerned himself to select from among the Gentiles a people for his name. The prophets agree with this as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the fallen tent of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Namely, all the Gentiles I have called to be my own, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, I conclude that we should not cause extra difficulty for those among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we should write them a letter telling them to abstain from the things defiled by idols and from sexual immorality and for what has been strangled and from blood. For Moses has had those who proclaim him in every town from ancient times because he has read aloud in the synagogues Every Sabbath. Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to send men chosen from among them, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leaders among the brothers, to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent this letter with them. From the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile brothers and sisters in Antioch, Syria, Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some have gone out from among us with no orders from us and have confused you, upsetting your minds by what they said, we have unanimously decided to choose men to send you along with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas, who will tell you these things themselves in person. For it seemed best to the Holy Spirit and to us to not place any greater burden on you than these necessary rules, that you abstain from meat that has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep from doing these things, you will do well. Farewell. So after Peter speaks in verse 12, we hear from Paul and Barnabas. And they gave an eyewitness testimony to the miracles 
that they see God had done among the Gentiles. And then the rest of the section is James. And James helps us move the ball across the finish line. Like I said before, just defining the gospel, what Peter did, doesn't solve the issue. There's still a lot of emotion. There's still a lot of questions that have to be worked through. And James puts forth a compromise that ends up getting full support of everybody. Now, before we get into what he does do, just consider what he could have done. He could have said, oh, we heard from Peter. We heard from the Old Testament. We heard from Paul and Barnabas. We have a mountain of evidence that they're right. And so, case closed. He doesn't do that. What he does, again, is a compromise that he puts forth. And he does it in two basic parts. In the first part, he quotes the Old Testament, which he quotes Amos 9, in verses 16 to 18. And this is to show that it's been God's plan from the Old Testament to include the Gentiles. This wasn't something that, that, uh, that Peter made up or even Jesus made up. It's been God's plan all along. In verse 15, he says, The words of the prophets agree with this eyewitness testimony that we've heard. It's not a new concept. And then secondly, his second part is this compromise. He puts forth four prohibitions as a way to compromise. The things that they want Gentile Christians to follow, and he suggests writing them down. Now, if you were to ask me, why did they pick these four things? I don't really know. But the best guess is that these represent the sticking points in their, all of their discussions and debates that they were having trouble over. And James thought, okay, let's take care of these things, and that will enable us to move forward. And he is persuasive in his argumentation. Because if you remember, verse 5, you had a whole group of leaders saying, you have to do these things to be saved. You have to be circumcised. And by the end, when they, when they write the letter, it has nothing, there's no, nothing in there about circumcision. But it says that in verse, uh, uh, verse 22, that they, they all agree, the whole church agrees. In verse 25, it says they have a unanimous decision. And so people are bought into this. In verse 19, James says that we shouldn't cause extra difficulty for these Gentiles who are turning to God. Now, one thing that he doesn't say in this chapter is that let's not, uh, let's not cause extra difficulty for the verse 5 Jews who are having trouble with this decision. We've got to care for them, too. We need to bring everybody along. And in verse 21, I think this is what he's getting at when he says that, that Moses has been proclaimed in every town, every Sabbath. We need to be sensitive with this decision and how we move forward. He does not just tell everybody in the verse 5 camp, he doesn't just say, get over it, get along with it. So even with clarity on the gospel, there are some real issues of concern that people have and especially in this case, that need to be worked through. If not, it could easily divide the church. And I'm sure you are aware that Christians have had differing opinions on very important matters of faith since the very beginning. And what James 
I think helps us to see is that it's the very gospel itself that enables us to listen to others' concerns and sacrifice and lay down our preferences to serve others. In other words, the gospel gives us the opportunity to consider others better than ourselves. If you're familiar with it, uh, Paul writes a letter to the Corinthian church in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. He's telling them about laying down our preferences to serve other people. And the, and the main issue on the table was eating meat. So eating meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul says that we need to not do things that, even though you have the freedom to eat the meat, you don't want to do things that's going to cause stumbling block or issues for your fellow believer. And so Paul even goes as far as to say in, in 1 Corinthians 8.13, he says, for this reason, if food causes my brother or sister to sin, I'll never eat meat again so that I may not cause one of them to sin. So we see in James' proposal here is, is not compromising on what it means to be a Christian. Peter had already defined that, but it's the other matters to help preserve unity. Now, we don't have time to really get into it, but, but basically three out of the four of these things, these four, the, the uh, abstaining from things defiled by idols and sex morality and things, avoiding the type of meat and blood, you could describe these as, as cultural. As for sexual morality, they, they should, probably shouldn't have been doing that anyway, but that one got in there. And what this allows is that those who have troubled consciences about the behavior of the Gentiles enables them to buy in and everyone moves forward. Verse 22, the whole church agrees and gives verbal, even they send these guys to give verbal, verbal affirmation. Now, what is happening here in this section is remarkable. What you see is a separation between culture and the core message of Christianity. Those two are not equal to one another. For example, the church in Antioch, which is hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem, could have people in it who wholeheartedly believe the gospel, but they, they act differently, they dress differently, they worship differently, than the church in Jerusalem. It might look very different. But their unity comes through Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus. And the same is true today. Believers in Christ rooted and secure in their belief that Jesus is the only basis for salvation. They can have radically different experiences and radically different cultures. And so what's the application? The application is that as you receive the gospel, this gives you the opportunity to lay down your life and sacrifice for others. Or in other words, the point on the outline, to comp compromise on culture, but not on the gospel. People have a different opinion than you, and some of those opinions are very strong. So much so that if you were to exercise the freedom that you have in that certain area, it would cause a stumbling block for them in that area. As I quoted earlier, Paul is willing to give up meat. He's willing to become a vegetarian. You ready to do that? If we think about this past year, we have been in a season of opportunities to do this. And churches, sadly, have been fractured because of them. 
And as an elder, I can tell you that when we make a decision as an elder board and the decision goes out, we might have one response that comes back and says, how dare you? You're not believing the Bible. And then another response that says, you're believing the Bible. We're so thankful that you're our leaders. Remember the words here in verse 1 and verse 5 when they said how strongly you cannot be a Christian unless you do these things. But what happens at the end of the story? They work it through. The gospel calls us all to humility and putting others first. And what this looks like is it likely means that you will have to agree to do things that are not your first preference. So examine your heart. Consider a church decision or a member's perspective that you did not disagree, that you disagreed with this past year. How would you think that through if you had to go back and do it over again? What would you do differently? How would you think differently? For me, one of the lessons is I find it in verse seven where, where Peter had all this mountain of evidence, but he doesn't speak first. He listens first. And that's been one thing that the Lord is teaching me this past year is it's so easy to assert my opinion and not listen to others. So let's compromise on culture, not compromise on the gospel. So that this church here comes to unanimous decision. And there, I'm sure there was joy. But the church in Antioch does not know about this decision yet. So let's read about that and we'll move on to point number four. No burdens equals great joy. Verse 30. So when they were dismissed, they went down to Antioch. And after gathering the entire group together, they delivered the letter. When they read it aloud, the people rejoiced at its encouragement. Both Judas and Silas, who were prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with a long speech. Some things we will not imitate this morning. After they had spent some time there, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming, along with many others, the word of the Lord. So now the scene changes. We are back in Antioch. Everyone's back there. And it says they got the whole church together. And in verse 31, it says that they were rejoicing at the letter's encouragement. Now, Part of the reason they were probably encouraged was, if you remember from verse 1, you know, they, they had received the gospel, they were having joy, and then these guys come in who seem like they're the authorities, and they're saying, no, that's not really true. And so they're disturbed. And so when the letter says in verse 24 uh, that these guys get rebuked, you know, they went out without our authorization, that probably felt like, oh, good, Whew, that wasn't the official message of the church. But I don't think that was the main reason for their rejoicing. The main content of this letter is oh, these prohibitions, these four prohibitions. You know, as an elder, if I gave you four prohibitions right now, or five or ten, it doesn't really matter, but if I gave you a whole bunch of prohibitions, would you be like, yeah, like you got to take your shoes off before you come into the sanctuary, or we're going to have the service go a few more hours every Sunday. We want you to skip lunch every week on Sundays. You know, all these different kinds of things. Would you be rejoicing? Probably not. 
Why were they rejoicing? Let's dig a little bit deeper here. The key to understanding is the, the, the key to understanding why they're rejoicing is their perspective. And here's the question. What do you consider a burden? Verse 19, when James is, is talking, he says, we shouldn't cause extra difficulty for these Gentiles. They're turning to God. Let's not get in the way. In verse 28, in the letter, he says, we're not going to place any greater burden on you. And if you remember Peter's section in verse 10, he talked about the yoke. The yoke is this, this block of wood to control animals. Have you ever heard of beast of burden? That's what a beast of burden is. And the burden that Peter is referring to is the burden of carrying out and fulfilling the entire law. This is a burden that no one can bear. You know, consider, can you live your life perfectly all the way through without messing up once and knowing the whole time that if you messed up once, you would be forever alienated with God and, and life and forgiveness? Well, I guess you, would, you wouldn't have forgiveness, but you would be alienated from God. How could you bear that? That's impossible. That is a burden. It's when you know you're stuck in an impossible situation and there's nothing you can do to get out of it. That's a burden. If you were to be rescued from this burden somehow, wouldn't that give you a perspective on all other burdens? It would. And so the, the believers in Antioch are clear and they rejoice because they know the biggest burden of all burdens, being right with God, has been removed. And they rejoice. Jesus is the one who took their burdens. He took on sin and death for them so they could have life. Verse 11 again. We believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus. They knew it. They knew that they were set free. They knew their sin wasn't going to be held against them. They did not have this burden to make, make God right or to make their relationship with God right because Jesus has done it. Have you experienced this? Do you understand this joy? Before I understood the gospel, I, 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 th- I imagined this hammer over my head ready to drop because I knew I was not right with God. And when I heard that sin could be forgiven, and that there was that hammer could be gone, and I could have new life in Christ. I jumped at the opportunity to grab it and grab hold of life. Have you experienced this? You know, I I, I jumped at that opportunity, even knowing that some of the implications are that I would have other burdens, that I would have to sacrifice for others, that I would have to lay down preferences for others. But it needed to be in context. It needs to be in context. I would happily do it. Joyfully do it. Because of what Christ did for me. Now, when we think about this church, we're not given any indication how burdensome they felt on these four prohibitions. But they did know that Jesus has cleansed their hearts and it enables them to joyfully honor their leaders and submit to these restrictions. We're not given any other indication otherwise. So how does this apply to us? Never forget that you stand forgiven because of the grace of God. You're no better. You're not more deserving than your enemies. 
And knowing this, knowing you've been freed from the impossible situation will cause you to rejoice. And again, this security in Christ, which you could have, gives you the freedom to lay down your life for others. If you do not know this freedom that I'm talking about up here, I would love to talk with you after the service. I'll be right over there. I'd love to chat with you, answer any questions, and maybe even share why I believe what I believe. And I pray that everyone will experience this. So in conclusion, the title of this message, if you look on your outline, it says the clarity of the, on the gospel saves the church. The message of Christianity, what it means to be a Christian, was on the table. It was challenged. And the church worked to gain that clarity. Verse 11, again, I keep appealing to it. That is that what we believe, that you're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. And that's what you're staking your life on. But that wasn't it. They had to keep working through these other matters in order to bring unity. Again, they started verse 1 and verse 5. Heavy opposition. And in the end, we have unity and rejoicing in God's church. May Grace Fellowship be such a church. And if you would, bow your heads and let's pray. And the worship team, I believe, is coming up. God, thank you for our time here this morning. Thank you for this example in Acts 15 of a church that went through uh, some very trying times and that you used Peter and others to, to explain what it really means to know you, that we don't earn our salvation. We depend wholly on Jesus. And God, help us to never forget that, especially in the midst of conflict and disagreements. Let us start by, by understanding and applying the gospel to our hearts and seeing uh, how we need to listen to others and how we need to change in order to serve them. We pray this all in your name. Amen.